We're told Francesco Vincento Arcangelo Rosati was a simple man who had a complex life, like most of us. When he was a young boy growing up on a farm in the hills of central Italia, he had no idea that he would be taken on a journey from his pastoral home to the coal fields of the eastern United States. He emigrated to America, but unlike many of his countrymen and fellow Europeans in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, he did not leave home to seek riches and a new life. He had a comfortable life in a city in southwest Luxembourg where he and his wife Rosa lived with their two children. Circumstances, not dreams, pushed him farther away from his ancestral home and his and Rosa's families. Once in America, however, he seized the opportunity to build something better than he had in pre-war Europe. He found the means to feed his family, a family that grew when Maria and Yolanda arrived, to build a new homestead, to see his children happily marry and prosper, and to become a grandfather whom we called Nono Keiko. What was it then that caused him to take those long, dangerous steps to place himself as well as his young bride and infant children at the mercy of so many uncontrollable forces and travel at the beginning of the First World War to a foreign country and a completely unknown future, what could compel him to risk everything, even death, to meet an uncertain fate? I am certain that he, like most of us, had a secret that affected the course of his entire life a secret that he never shared with anyone and only rarely acknowledged to himself. I set out to uncover his secret and piece together his story from the fragments of facts that we know about Francesco Rosati, about his wife Rosa Notari and her family, since these two families are so tightly intertwined, and from some probable occurrences based on the places and times in which he and Rosa and our ancestors lived. Words of Michael L. Senna in the preface to his book titled Francesco, A Man and His Family's Journey Through Life. Michael Senna, a native of Scranton who lives and works in Sweden, is an internationally recognized expert in telematics, digital map databases, location-based services, and navigation. He has owned and run his consulting practice since 1983 with clients in Europe, North America, and Asia in the mapping, automotive, software, system development, telematics service, and database industries. During a four-year period, Michael worked for AB Volvo in Gothenburg, Sweden, with responsibility for navigation, travel information, and fleet management data activities. And he continues to write to write about his professional interests and passionately about his family. In introducing us to his purpose in another of his books, titled Conversions, Michael cites the Neapolitan philosopher and professor of rhetoric at the University of Naples, Giambattista Vico, who said, we cannot know who we are unless we have an understanding of how we became who we are. Vico postulated that knowledge of what it means to be a person in our own time results from not only assembling historical facts, but also from our capacity as humans to attain understanding through our own imagination. So, 
here in our prologue to a recent conversation with Michael Senna is the framework, in a sense, underlying his life's journey. We'll talk about his professional interests, his new novel, The Coleman, but at the very root will be the question, who am I? Who am I always within the context of we? Who are we? His internal GPS, it seems, is attuned to following where that question leads him. To begin, we'll draw vocabulary from the world of surveying. Station, the precise point from which measurements are made. So Scranton is Michael Senna's station. My father was born on uh, Scranton Street, just across from where St. Lucy's Church would eventually be built. He was born in, in uh, 1911. The church was built in, in 1925. And my grandfather had come from a um, small, small village in uh, Campania uh, at the age of 17. He was a shoemaker. He came to uh, Scranton. His, most of his family, his brother and, his, and uh, one of his sisters, was in Brooklyn. So most, most of the family was in Brooklyn. But he came to, to Scranton, where his future wife had already come, Jenny Ricciardi, who lived on Railroad Avenue. And they married. They, um, after a few years, moved to, to South 7th Street. And my, my grandfather had a shoemaker shop on South 7th Street until he passed away in 19, 1952. My father spent his entire life, except for almost four years when he was in the military during World War II, in the Scranton, West Scranton, Bellevue area. I went to the same grade school, Washington Irving Number 12 grade school, as he did. I had the same kindergarten teacher as my, as my uh, father did and my sister. My sister's three years, three years older. So... We lived on South 7th Street. When I looked out of my bedroom window, I looked across to the gas, the gas tank that went up and down and the coal that went into the gas converter. And Central Scranton was on the other side of, of Lackawanna River, which back in the 1950s was, a, was very black and very polluted. My mother's family, first my mother's father came in 1914, tried his hand at being a baker, but eventually ended up in the mines and my grandmother, with already two children, they were living in Luxembourg in the town called esch sur when the First World War began. They decided my grandfather was not going to spend time in anyone's army, so he came over to the United States. So we are, he already had family here as well. And they settled in Old Forge. My grandfather was a coal miner until uh, he retired, in, I think, also in 1952. And uh, my mother and father met and married, and we lived on South 7th Street until cave in in 1950, I think it was 1959, the street caved in, and that entire area was uh, eventually taken over by the Scranton Redevelopment Authority, and everyone moved to different parts of, of Scranton, and we moved to Luzerne Street, and then my sister and I went to West Scranton High School. So uh, West Scranton, then Princeton, and a year in London, and a number of years and 18 years in Boston and eventually uh, moved to Sweden. So I, I grew up in, in Scranton and Scranton is still my home. I've managed to get back there more since I left the United States to move to Sweden in 1992 because I continued to have clients there until my mom passed away in 2014. But uh, I've been there very often and my closest friends and family are still in Scranton. So I consider Scranton still to be my home. Speaking of home, you tell 
a moving story about the time when you you just referred to the redevelopment and having to move everybody out of the neighborhood. And you your house was the last one to be bulldozed. Tell us that story because it really affected your life, didn't it? It sure did. And it's it it, it had a major effect effect on me and how I related to to well, to law, to to government, to industry. In our our house my father came back from Germany. My my grandfather had bought the house. I wasn't born in the house. I was born in Mercy Hospital, but the house that that we were living in when I was when I was born. And that house was right across the street from my my grandparents. And one of my aunts and her husband lived right next door to my grandparents. So, so it was this, this little little Italian community. The two stores were owned by by two Jewish families. There were three bars at the, four actually four beer gardens. <laughs> What two at one end and two at the other end of the, the street. Early one morning it was four four o'clock in the morning. I remember it very well. It was knocking on the door, banging on the door, and my father went down and I was at the top of the stairs with my sister and he was twelve twelve years old at the time. And the police were there and said you have to get out of the house. And as soon as they opened the door, the smell of gas came into the house. So we we got dressed as quickly as possible. It was about at that time there was about two feet of snow on the ground. It snowed very heavily. And we we came out and we we saw immediately that some of the houses had had uh, caved in. So we went across the street, the one place where it seemed to be safe, and, and everybody on the street had sort of gathered there, and there was nothing to see. I mean, nothing was happening except the, there were a lot of policemen, and just suddenly life. We knew that life was going to change because instead of having a fairly flat street, the street suddenly looked like a roller coaster. But it it took about two years for this whole process to end. And, and our house never caved in. That was, people would say, well, it didn't cave in because it was built on top of the, the mule barns. And the, you know, they, didn't, they didn't take the, the pillars, the wooden pillars away because the mules were there. And that, that actually was, that wasn't true, but that's, that was the story. I don't really know why our house and the house next to us didn't cave in, but all the other houses and the entire street was just it's just rolling, you know, instead of being being flat. So the um, Scranton Redevelopment Authority came in fairly quickly and decided that they weren't going to repair anything. They were just going to move everyone out, and everyone's house was bought for for whatever value they put on it, and everyone moved. And my father had been there since he was born in 1911. He was there since 1918, 1919. It was it was very it, it affected everything. I mean, where where would we live? Growing up in Bellevue, I could have gone to either Tech or Central or West Scranton. That was one of those you know interstitial areas where you could actually choose where to go. We bought a house two blocks away from West Scranton High School, and it was a whole new life. All new friends and most of the people that I had grown up with, most of the friends that I had, were living in different parts of Scranton, and. Uh, it changed life significantly. The, the big thing, that the main effect, was that realize that it's so important that your your house and the deed for the house is in your name because it wasn't clear exactly who owned the house. So it took longer for us to be able to move because they, they didn't know where the money should go. I mean, was there was it in an estate? And it was kind of complicated, but uh, it it ended up fine. And moving to Luzerne Street was a was a very positive thing. Living closer to the school was really nice. Instead of having to walk up it's about a mile and a half from where we lived up to the high school, the two years that I did that in, in seventh and eighth grade. 
You suggested that the experience did change the way you understood the law and governmental relations. You went on to study architecture and urban planning. Did those interests have anything to do with maybe not that distressing experience in Scranton, but your sense of Scranton as a place? How did you get interested in urban planning and architecture? For some reason, I I really don't know why. I was... I was good in, in mathematics, and, and uh, I liked to draw. My father was an artist. My father studied at Pratt in Brooklyn for um, a year and a half. He didn't finish. It was in the beginning of the Depression. My grandfather couldn't continue to, to pay the fee for the, for the college, as well as all the gifts that he had to give to his brother for my father living, living there. It was just sort of natural, but it just wasn't the right time. So my father came back and went to work at Scranton Lace, where he was a lace curtain designer. But he studied art. His his entire life was art. I mean, he his day job was was designing lace curtains. His night job was was doing silkscreen work and and designs for the uh, advertisements for the uh, yellow pages. He did that in our, our basement, and he spent his free time doing oil paintings. So, art was very much a part of of our life. Uh, we went to the Everhart Museum whenever we could. You know, from the time I was a little kid. So drawing and and doing things in mathematics, and I said, you know, I want to be an engineer from the, from, the, from the start. I want to be an engineer. So when I was in high school, we had, we had sort of career days. We went to different places, and I went to an engineering firm, and I went to an architecture firm, and uh, sat down with, with an engineer and uh, talked about you know, what he did. And he said, sounds to me like you're more interested in being an architect it sounds like you want to do things that we're designing and you want to be with people and some, you know, maybe you want to look into architecture. So this is, I was in high school, I was junior year in high school. So I did. And the more I looked at it, the more I thought, this is terrific. And I, this, I really think this is what I want to do. And then it went, when it was time to choose universities, I was really lucky. I happened to go to the high school that one of the best football players that Scranton ever had, Cosme Akavazi, was in our church, and I knew him, and, and he was sort of like mentor to many of us. And four years later, I was the captain of the football team, and I did pretty well. And he, was, he said, you know, you really ought to come to Princeton. He was just graduating from Princeton, and I was graduating from high school. You really ought to come to Princeton. So I went, went to Princeton to look at the program, and I said, I want to study architecture. And they said, well, we have an architecture school here, and you don't have to you know, be a professional architect the first couple of years. You just you can study architecture. And there were a couple of other colleges that were interested in me coming to play football. And I went to Cornell and I went to Brown and Columbia didn't have a program. It came down to the University of Pennsylvania and uh, Princeton, who both had similar programs. And I decided the first time I saw Princeton, and it was for me and the architecture school, it just, it just was a natural. So I went to Princeton and I I studied architecture, and then after four years, I continued there for three more years and did a joint degree in architecture and urban planning. So after after three years, came out with a with a joint degree in architecture and planning. And yes, to get back to your question, I did my senior year thesis on in Scranton, and I did my master's architecture master's degree thesis related to Scranton, and I did my urban planning degree thesis related to to, uh, Scranton. So it had a very big effect on me. I haven't seen anything that, that I designed that actually happened in Scranton, but that's, it's, there's still time. 
I don't mean a literal conversation. Did you have any kind of conversation with Jane Jacobs at all, who was from Ooh, Scranton? Well, I didn't. I didn't know that Jane Jacobs was from Scranton. When I when I was studying at Princeton, I devoured her books. It was a, it was her book was was seminal. I mean, it was one of the one of the most important books for me when I was reading this because Scranton at the time when I was growing up, Scranton was one hundred and twenty five thousand people. It was built and it was up to one hundred and forty thousand around the time of uh, World War II, and then it began to, to go down. But still, when I was growing up, Scranton was a vibrant community. I mean, if you, if you saw Back to the Future, when, what's his name, left the county, the Courthouse Square, and he took off in the, in the car, that scene of Courthouse Square in Scranton was Scranton. The, the Globe Store and Scranton Dry Goods, and we had Comerford, the Strand, the Riviera. We, it was a terrific place. To be and I, yeah, I went to the Y. I wasn't growing up as a Catholic. We went to the Catholic Catholic Youth Center, just down the street was the Jewish Community Center. The, the YMCA was there, and that's that's where the kids went on Saturdays, and that's where we learned how to swim. And we were in the boys. I mean, it was just a it was a terrific place to be. We went to see, saw the Scranton Miners play the Wooksboro Barons, and you know, it it was a wonderful place to grow up. It's it's gotten to be a much smaller city than it was back then, but I saw a community that, for me, was was a, an ideal size from from all aspects. I could we could move around. I could take the bus and go to my grandmother's in Old Forge and my cousin in Dunmore and travel around and, and be able to walk. Just being able to walk from from the, the Catholic Youth Center down to 7th Street in Scranton on my own when I was you know, 10 years old, you know, walking from our, from where we lived into through the wholesale block onto Lackawanna Avenue. I mean, that was something that my parents had no no problems with me doing once I was you know, 8, 9, 10 years old. I could, could easily do that. And I have had this idea or ideal of what a community can be and what it, what it could take both from the standpoint of the politics. We had Mayor Hanlon for four terms. His, his nephew was our lawyer. I mean, he was, Tommy Hanlon was, the, was our, our lawyer when we were going through the whole process of, of having the house valued and then, and then sold. And I saw all of this. My first job after university was, was in London, working for the, for the London County Council. I, I worked in, in County Hall in the architect's office. That was the largest architectural firm in a public architecture, and it had the largest urban planning department as well. I worked in the architect department, but I was working in a, the design of a new town. And I had fully intended to be an architect and an urban planner, but something happened along the way, and it's kind of a, kind of a complicated story. But to put it simply, there was a huge depression, an economic depression that occurred. They called it a recession, but really it was much more of a depression, at least for architects. In, the, in around 1975, and about half of the architects on the East Coast were unemployed. And most of the architecture firms either went dormant or closed completely in Boston, where I was living. And it, it, was, it was a very distressing time because I wanted to be an architect, but I also wanted to be able to pay my bills. And it just happened that something occurred at that particular time that moved me out of architecture into a completely different field completely different in, in a ways that, that it had nothing to do with my, my uh, training and education, except for one thing, 
that I had begun to get involved and interested in computers when I was in college in 1969, 70, and then began working with computer simulation modeling and using computers for doing planning as well as design when I came to Boston. That was the reason I came to Boston, to work in an architectural firm that had computer-aided design. And that was the key that opened the door into a completely different career. But I didn't leave it because you know, I was frustrated with, with being an architect or frustrated or, or, or say, not, not wanting to continue to work in the field. It just was, it was a happenstance, and it had, had everything to do with the, with the economy. I could have gone back when the economy went, you know, recurred. But by that time, my whole my whole life and career were working in a in a completely different direction. Was it cars that took you to Sweden? No, it was it was maps. That's that's what happened. I was I was doing something with with computer aided design in Boston. I did a sun shadow analysis of the Boston Common using computers. Someone saw this, and one of the drawings was a map. It looked like a map. And he said, how did you do that? And I said, I used a computer. This is a, a person who, was, who at that time was working with, with mapping. And I said, I used, we did this with a computer. And in, to make a very long story short, he was at the Harvard Business School. Someone from the Harvard Business School was there from Sweden. The company he was working for owned a map company. One thing led to another. And within a few months, I was in Sweden with this person. And we came back with a million dollars to set up an operation building maps with computers. That was in 1977. And eventually that led to me working with maps that could be used in navigation systems, and that led to a contact with Volvo. And Volvo was building their first navigation system in 1992, and they said, can you come and work with us because we need somebody who knows what they're doing with, with maps and computers. And I, by that time, I was married to a Swedish woman. We married in 1984, and we moved back from the United States to Sweden, and I went to work for Volvo, and worked for Volvo for four, four years, and then went back to my own company. And from that point in time, I focused primarily on working within the car industry, but related to services, everything related to things like navigation, but also things like OnStar and communications in cars and databases and cars, and now with self-driving cars. Well, you said that Scranton is your home in that way. You have written a book. Is this the first time you've ever tried your hand at writing fiction? No. Uh, Sorry, I answered that question too too quickly. (laughs) It's the first time I've written a book that's completely fiction. I've written three, three books that are related to family and trying to put a history a real history together uh, and tying all of the pieces into a, to a narrative turns out to be very difficult when you, when you don't have all of the, the records that famous people have. Doing the writing about my grandparents, my mother's parents, and my father's parents, I was able to put as many facts together. But in order to create a narrative, there has to be some fiction involved. You have to have some imagination because you don't know exactly what's happened. So, so mining and the stories about mining were very much part of me. I took those stories. I mean, it was the same with my other grandfather. My mother, grandfather was a shoemaker, and you know, I grew up with the stories of, of you know what it meant to be not only a shoemaker but a business, you know, running a little business in in Scranton. But this is the first time that I've tried to write a book that is completely fiction. And um, well, I don't know. 
you care about these characters, you care about this place. So my question is, what do you know about mining disasters and how people gather and all of those things? Well, first of all, my grandfather was a, was a coal miner. And in my mother's family, when my grandfather came over in 1914, my, mother's, my mother had three brothers who were already in Old Forge, and they were miners. So my grandfather had two sisters. They came over, and they lived in Exeter. They married two miners. So that whole side of the family was mining. And I, I saw, I was still, I was old enough when my grandfather retired to see him coming home black, you know, completely covered in black and is, you know, driving his, his Model A Ford. And coal mining was a, a big part of the news. With the mining disasters that occurred during the time that, that I was you know, relatively young, up through the 50s and the and even into the 60s. And my mother talked a lot about, my mother told stories. I mean, I, I, I wrote a book about my mother's, mother's family, and that book was mainly written to be able to put in one place all the stories that she told. And those stories were her, her life. It wasn't just, you know, made-up things. It was her life. But she also told the stories that her mother told. And her mother told a lot about what was happening during the early times when they came. I mean, when, when my grandparents came, they lived first lived in Old Forge, but then they had to move to Inkerman, and they lived in, a, in an abandoned house because they had no money. This is in 1915, during the, during the first, first World War. They lived in an abandoned house for, for almost four years, uh, and then they came back to Old Forge when they were able to put enough money together to, to build a house. And they lived right next to the mine. The other thing is that all of the characters in that book somehow are, are people I knew. I was a privileged kid. We didn't have, we, it wasn't because we had money, we didn't. I mean, we, were, we lived in, in South 7th Street. If you live on South 7th Street, you didn't, have, you didn't have money. But my father went to school. He, was, he had a you know, decent education. He, went, he didn't go to college, but he, had, he was interested in, in education. My sister was a good student. When I got to, to school, they expected me to be a good student, and I was, I was just lucky. My parents said, you know, you, you're going to go to college, and you have to study. And I, and I had this sort of privileged background. But I saw the, the kids that I went to school with, the children that I was in, who were my friends in, in grade school, some of them didn't have shoes to wear to come to school. I mean, they were really poor, poor kids in that, in that Bellevue area around where we lived. And, and I saw them struggling. Many of them didn't finish boys, mostly, but many of them didn't finish high school. Some of them managed not to stay out of, out of trouble. Uh, it, was, it was very difficult being poor. I wasn't, I wasn't the miner. I didn't go into the mines. There was no way that I was ever going to be a, a miner. But I saw the kids who, who would eventually have to go there. And when you're growing up, people think, you know, you, you don't... You don't see, you don't understand, but most people do, one way or the other, whether they admit it to each other, or in my case, of taking as long as it has to get to the point of being able to, to write the story. I saw that, and you know, I, I think there's too little told about regular people. I mean, simple people who have very interesting lives and very complex lives, and they do things that you wouldn't really know why they've done them. But there's a reason for it. So each one of these characters, I've tried to see in each one of these characters why they ended up in the mine, 
and then how they saw themselves after the experience that they've that they've gone through during this day of being trapped in the mine. Michael Lawrence Senna, a native of Scranton who lives and works in Sweden, speaking with us about his family and his explorations into who he and his family were and are. Writing is one of the ways he probes the fundamental questions of our lives as humans. Tomorrow on Art Scene, we'll meet Jonesy and Nico and Woods and Tony and Connie and Lily and Elaine and the rest who are the center of Michael's new novel, The Coal Men. For more information on the web, michaellsenna.com. And Senna is S-E-N-A. michaellsenna.com. And the book is titled The Coal Men. We also made reference to his book titled Conversions and Francesco, A Man and His Family's Journey Through Life. Again, for more information, michaellsenna.com.